Amy. Welcome back, everyone. Hi, listeners. Episode 11. We took a break last week. And I think because we took a break, this might be the most jam-packed episode. Uh, We've just been marinating Uh. on our fears. My god. (laughs) Pulling new research together for all of you. Ready to bring you some content. Ready to bring you some content, and that content is going to be about the inflated value of diamonds. And the insane clown posse. (laughs) Two beautiful topics. I'm upset. (laughs) And they're both just... There's nothing... No. No, there's nothing... Don't try to segue right now. (laughs) Okay. I was both good. I was just gonna say, we both have so much to say right that's now. That's true. So that's the only thing that connects them. It's just our range. So let's just get started. Sam, please take it away. All right. What I'm gonna tell you right now is gonna make you a little bit sad, but we're gonna deal with it, and it's this. All diamonds are a true scam, and if you no. want one on your finger, you're dumb. And also, do I still want one? A little. That's problematic. Let's break it down. Same. You might be thinking, Sam, getting a diamond ring as an engagement thing, it's what everyone does, and I must do it, and diamonds are good and valuable, and I like them. Yes. You're wrong 100 times. Oh. (laughs) Diamonds are a true scam. Number one, diamonds do not have intrinsic value like gold or silver. You think they do. Why not? But they don't, because they're not rare, and they're marked up so much when you buy them that if you want to sell them again, you are going to be selling them at the wholesaler price, which is 100 to 200% less than what you bought them for. Aww. So, like, you can't resell a diamond? No, you really can't resell a diamond. Really? No, you cannot. They would buy it back for so cheap that you'd, like, would be upset that you bought the diamond in the first place, which is why jewelers don't like to buy back diamonds. Because A, it fucks with the diamond supply, which is very tightly controlled by a company called De Beers, which I will get back to. Oh my god. And when they buy back diamonds, they buy them back at the wholesale price, and their people are like, Wait, why can you buy back this diamond for $100 when I bought it from you for $300? And it's like, because the diamonds actually, surprise, are not worth anything. Oh my god. I'm overwhelmed right now. <laughs> We're gonna get into some economics in this I know, episode, you need folks. to break this down for me. But yeah, so as soon as you leave, as soon as you buy a diamond and leave the jeweler, it has already lost 50% of its value. That's like a car, though. Like, once you drive it off the lot, it's immediately less expensive. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like, it's not a good investment. It's not a good place to store your wealth. Like, you'd be better buying silver or gold. That at least has, like, an intrinsic value. Diamonds don't. But they're so sparkly. They are. They're also not that rare. Oh. Diamonds are not any more rare than any other stone, and it is only by carefully restricting the supply that De Beers, who's the company that owns all diamonds, has been able to keep the price of diamonds so high. Uh, I'm going to get into that in a minute. Is it because diamonds are forever? <laughs> oh my, I'm going to get into that too, Allison. <laughs> you think that's just a phrase? That was a marketing scheme. Oh, I've been watching a lot of Mad Men recently, so I believe <laughs> so it. So you might know about that one. And so these are just some things about diamonds that immediately takes, pardon the pun, the shine off. Oh, I get it. Do you get it? I get it. I get it. (laughs) We got there. It was a good pun. The other thing about diamonds that, again, in this horrifying, awful world, (laughs) you shouldn't be surprised about this, the labor practices when it comes to diamonds are pretty fucked up. (laughs) I know that because of Leonardo DiCaprio, and that makes me a bad person. Yep, yep, yep. So, (laughs) here's some things about um, diamonds and the people who mine them. Many diamond miners make less than $1 per day. That's shitty. Isn't that a bummer? <laughs> yeah, that's horrible. And small-scale diamond mining is often performed without any training. So in these, like, specific diamond mining regions of usually Africa, 
these people, it's the only thing they can really do to make a profit, but they don't get any training. They just kind of are like, go into that cave and, you know, try to make it work. Yeah, that's shitty, but I feel like that's a lot of labor practices. Yes, absolutely. That are unregulated. There's also, and I didn't think about this, but this is very true, there's a lot of environmental devastation from diamond mining. Like, Mm, people will litter landscapes with abandoned mining pits. And then those fill up with stagnant water, and then that gets infested by mosquitoes, and then it's a breeding ground for malaria. Oh. Right? So if you're living in an area that, like, was once very prosperous in diamonds, really what you have now is a ton of caves with stagnant water, and there's malaria everywhere. Oh. Gross. Doesn't that suck? And that's really... That's very serious. Malaria. Yeah, that's very dangerous, especially in Yeah, so that's not regions. just what I said, which is gross, but also very dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Surprise, also child labor. Oh, no. Did you think the children were safe, Allie? I thought maybe. They sure aren't. Uh, one survey of diamond miners in the London Norte province of Angola found that 46% of the miners were between the ages of 5 and 16. Oh my god, are you fucking kidding me? Absolutely. <laughs> that sucks. You're absolutely fucking kidding me? Good. <laughs> no, no, it's real. It's real. <laughs> oh, no. I wish I was kidding you. I wish I was like, just kidding you guys. Diamond trade is really nice and normal. So that's fucked up. And then, and this is another thing I didn't think that much about, we've got some economic issues. So, governments earn significant revenue from the diamond industry. So that makes them want to get more diamonds... And also, if you're, you know, a dictator or a bad leader, you don't really care about the human cost. That's a common trait of them. Mm, Getting those diamonds. It's a bummer. So, in these places, like, in the regions where diamond mining is the main source of income, the infrastructure is often, like, non-existent. But, like, the president can pay the military in diamonds. Oh. (laughs) Which is pretty fun. Fair enough. So, an example of this is in Zimbabwe... There's a guy named President Robert Mugambe, and he uses diamond revenues to keep the military loyal, and they have the richest diamond fields in the world, but, like, none of it goes to the actual regions where the diamonds are mined from, mm-hmm. which is a bummer, because these people are risking their lives with the economic devastation and the stagnant water and the yeah. child labor and the getting paid a dollar a day. It's, like, ruining that area, but they're not seeing it. And they're not seeing it. any of that diamond money. Just to, like, throw in a little bit of sunshine right now... Um, Botswana has actually done a good job, and because they have this diamond revenue, they've been able to institute universal primary education and build health facilities and roads. That's great. So That's go, what it could be like everywhere. Uh, yeah, and it sure is not. <laughs> so, oh. bummer. Go Botswana. Come on, every other place. And maybe should we buy our diamonds if we have to from Botswana? Is that a thing? I mean, I guess, but you don't really get to choose. <laughs> yeah, you're giving me a face like, don't buy diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you could go to Botswana and buy a diamond out of there from a local man, I would say absolutely. Is that not what Prince Harry mm-hmm. and Meghan Markle just did? Isn't her diamond from Botswana? I think it is. I think it is, too. I don't quite remember, but I believe you are correct. Yeah, I think it is. Um, and then I'm going to say a sentence. This sentence is a podcast in itself. Oh. Blood diamonds. <laughs> a podcast. Is a term used for diamonds mined in a war zone and sold to finance an insurgency and invading armies' war efforts or a warlord's activity. So I know you, about this. Yeah, you might have heard of Blood Diamonds before. It's a Leonardo DiCaprio movie. They're deeply fucked up in the, you know, you're, you get to have this shiny thing and it's financed this horrifying war in the region that it's from. It's really bad. I'm not even gonna, like, this is all I can even say about Blood Diamonds right now. Because this podcast must have a certain length. Right. But 
Google it. I mean, it's very sad. Definitely. So those are, blood diamonds are also known as conflict diamonds. So when you hear about conflict-free diamonds, that means that the diamonds were not bought in a war zone, Mm -hmm. which is a good thing, generally. Yeah. Conflict-free diamonds could still have all those other problems about, like... It might be fucking up the economy, local oh. economy. It might be child labor. I didn't know that. I, I assumed conflict-free diamonds... Meant no, just no conflict. Yeah, but that's actually a really good point, and I'm glad you said that, because I didn't even think about, oh, as long as they're not causing war, but they're still creating economic instability, yeah. and they're still not being traded ethically. Yeah. So, that's... That's a bummer. Yeah, so... It's more of a bummer for those yeah. so places. If you <laughs> must buy a diamond, a conflict-free diamond is better... From Botswana, great. From Botswana, even even better. Yeah. But here's the thing, and I talked about this at the top. So I just said all that about diamonds. And it's all a bummer, but just knowing labor practices in the world, none of it was truly shocking. Yeah. You know what I mean? Honestly. So why haven't diamonds become a thing that we don't buy anymore? Like, why are we still like, well, that's a bummer, but I need a diamond engagement ring so and i do feel like i need one exactly exactly and do you know why you feel like you need one because in 1938 de beers decided to tell you that you need one Mm. and that literally and i looked into this and it's crazy that is the reason that you think you need a diamond ring as an engagement gift from your future partner but i've never heard of them well you're about to oh god (laughs) so let's talk about the de beers group of companies Uh, The De Beers Group of Companies is an international corporation that specializes in diamond exploration, diamond mining, diamond retail, diamond trading, and industrial diamond manufacturing sectors. Ali, that sure sounds like a monopoly in the diamond industry, doesn't it? It does, and it doesn't sound romantic at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So De Beers currently owns about 40% of diamonds. Of all diamonds. That's too much. And this is, like, the lowest percentage of diamonds they have owned in a very long time. They used to own all of them. All of them. So, like, they've let go of their monopoliness in the last few years because they don't need it because diamonds are so ubiquitous that it's like, oh, we can live on only 40% of the market. Cautiously optimistic. <laughs> no. Your, your eyes say no. My eyes are saying a big ol' no. De Beers was founded in 1888 by a man named Cecil Rhodes. He was British. Not alarming. (laughs) I'm not shocked. And here's why he founded this company. So diamonds are not rare, but they actually were a really rare thing until, like, the 1870s. And they only existed for, like, a queen or they'd be, like, on a Maharaja's headpiece. Like, very fancy, Mm -hmm. genuinely the way we perceive diamonds now as, like, wow, what a rare, beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. They were. But in the 1870s, enormous deposits of diamonds were discovered in Kimberley, South Africa. So all of a sudden, there was this new huge source of diamonds, and they flooded the market, and the people financing the mines realized that all of these new diamonds made their investment in mines worthless. Because there were so many diamonds, why would I pay $10 for yours when I could pay 5 for his? We've all got diamonds. And the market was basically right. bottoming out. Right. Which was bad for diamond miners. And they all wanted to get out of there. In comes Cecil Rhodes. And he's like, all right, you want to get out of the diamond business. I get it. Diamond business is bottoming out. I'll buy your mine from you. And he said that to every diamond miner in South Africa. And they're all like, okay. And they're like, this works for me. I'm out. Amazing. 
1888, Cecil Rhodes controlled the entire South African diamond supply. He had bought every mine in South, South Africa, which is the main place the diamonds were coming from at the time. Right. And because he now owned every mine, he could control the supply. Oh, because he can choose when he doled them out. Exactly. He oh, has no competition. bad. So, whereas before it was like, you can buy from Mr. Smith's mine, or you can buy from Mr. Jones's mine, or you can buy from Mr. Gregson's mine, now it's all Cecil Rhodes, it's all De Beers, which is the company he formed. He and the company, ever since, has really tightly controlled the diamond supply, so they literally will, like, go to the big manufacturers and be like, great, like, here's your thousand diamonds for the year. And you can either say, like, yes, I need those, or like, oh, I don't like these, and to which he goes, okay, close the suitcase, you don't get diamonds this year. Oh no. And because he controls the supply so tightly, the diamond market went way through the roof. Diamonds became very expensive again. Yeah, but I guess you could get them in a ring rather than just having them in a queen's crown. Yes. There was more than there used to be. He could create, like, his own stimulating market and make lots of money. Yes. In a more middle-of-the-road way. So that went really well until... In the 1930s, there was something you might have heard of. It was called the Great Depression. The whom? <laughs> I'm not going to explain the Great Depression. I don't context. know her. <laughs> My God. So, during the Great Depression, people could not buy food. So they obviously were not <laughs> buying diamonds. That's just... airtight logic. <laughs> and this was especially an easy thing to go because before the Great Depression... Diamond engagement rings were a thing, but they weren't as ubiquitous a thing as they are now. It was, Mm -hmm. like, a thing, maybe, like, your friend or your cousin, like, oh, yeah, she got a diamond engagement ring, but then, like, me and my beau just made a promise and he gave me his pin. Like, it really wasn't as much of, like, a, if you are engaged, you have a ring. Right. So, it was... I didn't know that. Yeah. It really, pre-Great Depression, engagement rings were not huge. So the people who might have wanted to buy an engagement ring didn't. And Beers was really kind of fucked because um, the U.S. engagement market was still 75% of their sales. Even though rings were not nearly as ubiquitous as they are today. Oh, and, in, and just in the U.S. too. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's interesting, too. So if they had to grow, they had to reverse this trend. And to do that, they hired a man called Gerald Locke. L-A-U-C-K. Jury's out. I'm going to say Locke. That's fine. Right? Sounds like you're saying it with, like, a thick New York accent. Like, lock. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm going for. Well, he's an advertising executive, so it feels like that's right. Yeah. But he worked at the NWA, or Advertising Agency. And they were basically like, we need to be able to sell these rocks that we have a ton of and nobody wants. (laughs) (laughs) And he pushed up his sleeves (laughs) and said, this is the job for me. Yes. So the Air Advertising Agency, where Jared Locke worked... Did a big survey, really thought about it, and they realized that they had to do two things. Number one, they had to make diamonds synonymous with romance in the eyes of American women. They did a good job. <laughs> yes. So like I said before, before the Great Depression, before this advertising campaign that Gerald Locke is going to come up with, like diamonds were not ubiquitous to engagement and women, and this makes sense if you think about it, like if your friend got a diamond engagement ring, like you wanted a sapphire engagement ring. Like, you wanted to be special and different. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? hmm So that was a big problem they faced, was, like, all women don't want the same ring. <laughs> what are we gonna do? Yeah. And well, then if Martha has a ruby, then I want an emerald, and I want it to be the size of Martha's fucking face. Exactly. So that she 
hates me. Exactly. But loves me and yes. wants to be me. Absolutely. They really get women, huh? And to this day, that's exactly how women are. Absolutely. So, so they had that problem, but they were still like, we got to make it the romantic thing for women. But we also have to wrap diamonds up in the male ego. That was the real secret. Mm. Surprise! The male ego <laughs> is the secret to everything. Yeah, and not that hard of a nut to crack, mm-hmm. in my opinion. So what they realized they had to do um, was make a man feel like his fiance's ring was a reflection of him. Yes. And as he felt like his, the ring was a reflection of him, he would buy the biggest fucking diamond. Yeah. He could. It's like marking your territory. Like, oh, this is not only my beautiful woman that's just an extension of me, uh-huh. but here's, like, here's basically... Here's a giant piece of rock yeah, on her face. Here's my penis size <laughs> yeah. on her on ring her finger, finger forever. Absolutely. And the direct quote from Gerald Locke is, promote the diamond as one material object which can reflect in a very personal way a man's success in life. Ah, romance. And it sure does. So they decided this is what they had to do, and here's how they did it. Number one, they made sure that in the movies, all of a sudden, all the romantic leads were giving diamonds to the female romantic leads. That'll do it. In every scene, and at the end of every movie, all of a sudden, getting down on one knee, popping out a De Beers diamond, will you marry me? So that's what everyone's seeing. They started offering news stories and society photographs to magazines about heiresses and princesses and the size of diamonds they were getting to make it a really aspirational thing. Uh, They organized a weekly service called Hollywood Personalities, which provided newspapers with the diamonds worn by movie stars. Which they still do now. Which they still do. I still know that Kim Kardashian has a 15-carat ring. Why do I know that Blake Lively has, like, an oval-shaped diamond? (laughs) Why do I know that? Exactly. And in 1947, they commissioned a series of portraits of engaged socialites to create, like, role models for poor or middle-class wage earners. That sucks. I know, right? (laughs) And then De Beers did something that just took cojones. It took real balls. (laughs) Which was? Which was... They started circulating marketing materials, so like, suggesting, just, like, as a number they made up. This was not, you know, this is something they just wrote down, that a man should spend one month's salary on the ring he was going to give his fiance. Oh. And it worked so well that, like, a year later, they changed all the marketing materials to say that a man should spend two months' salary on the ring he was going to give his fiance. And now it's three, right? I- I, I've always heard two or three. I've heard three. Yeah. I've heard three. And that is because De Beers was like, do you think if we do this, <laughs> people will, people will do it? Yep. And the answer was, yeah. Yeah. Because men are grasping into the <laughs> air for any rules about how to treat women. Absolutely. Absolutely they are. And mo- even more importantly, men just want to be the top dog. That's true. That's true. So it's like, yeah, I spent a month's salary, and my month's salary is bigger than yours, and look yeah. at this rock! Oh, you spent one month's salary? <laughs> I spent two months' salary because I can afford it. Yeah. Yeah. So the fact that that's still a rule to this day is so crazy. <laughs> it's so crazy. It is. It really lasts. Like, I know that. Like, yeah. why do I know that? I yeah. don't, I'm not trying to get engaged right now. Why do I know how many months, in theory, a man should spend on an engagement ring? Like, it's literally something I've just always known. Yes. And it's just something they made up. Yeah, and it's not something that was in a manner's manual or 
somebody, like, a movie star said it. It was literally on, like, a marketing pamphlet. Emily Post could give a shit how much your diamonds cost. Exactly. Then we get to something that you said to me earlier in this episode. A diamond is forever. Oh. So a diamond is forever is a marketing phrase. It was invented by... A copywriter at the Ayers Advertising Agency, her name was Frances Garrity. Oh, it was a woman, like Peggy Olson. Right? There you go. I love that. And she came up with this phrase in 1947, and it has been used in every De Beers ad ever since. Even now? Even now. A diamond is forever is still their motto. And she she said when she pitched it in the room, all of her male coworkers were like, it doesn't really mean anything. And she was like, no, it doesn't, but I think it works. (laughs) And they just shrug like, yep, that's where that works <laughs> really, for me. Fair enough. And it does. And the tagline represents the ultimate and I- ultimately impossible promise. If you buy this object, your love will never end. And like I said, this was uh, 1947 when this came out. So people were thinking about going off to war. People were thinking right. about coming home from war and the new life they were going to have. And like this idea of being able to put something on someone's finger that meant we're going to be stable and together forever. And it's never going to chip or break. Just, like, we're never going to chip or break and everything is going to be just perfect like this from now on was a really powerful idea. Uh, I'm intoxicated right now. (laughs) You're selling it. Uh, Thank you, Francis, for for this ad pitch. I do. So, they launched this campaign. And within three years, despite the Great Depression, diamond sales in the U.S. increased 55%. Oh my god. That's crazy. Yes. And as the, like, they've been rolling out this campaign ever since. Like I said, A Diamond is Forever is still De Beers' motto. And they, they've, like, been changing it. So in the 60s, it was like, my chapel is going to be a meadow and, you know, my priest will be a friend of mine or something, but my diamond will be like my mother's. Like, that was Mm. the vibe for the 60s. And then in the 80s, it was like, my girl loves rock and roll, so I gave her a rock and we're going to roll on. Gross. A diamond is forever. <laughs> like, literally, this, like, they've been editing it slightly. Advertising is so simple. Just kidding. But the craziest one that I heard was, I forget what decade this was, but for a while, De Beers had, like, a surplus of small diamonds. So all the marketing was focused towards, like, size doesn't matter, which used to be, like, it used to be, like, buy the biggest rock possible. And just because De Beers happened to have, like, more small diamonds that year. <laughs> Never mind. They were just like, actually, a bunch of small diamonds is an even better ring. And it, again, it worked. <laughs> it yeah. Worked. I think that's something that I've seen a lot now, um, especially people who want the look of a big ring but can't afford it. Mm-hmm. They'll do, like, a halo of little diamonds around, One, like, a like, half carat. Yeah. And that'll, it'll make it look bigger. Yes. But a wasp like me sees right through that. (laughs) But yeah, so the craziest thing about this to me is like, as they're rolling out this campaign, as of like the 50s, right? So this rolled out late 30s, 38, 39. As of the 50s, they were already saying a diamond is a tradition. A diamond means forever. A diamond is something that all your relatives had. When that was very clearly not true, because they started it. 10, 20 years before. But Americans just have a very, very short cultural memory. (laughs) That's true. So when a company says to you, like, probably your three times great-grandmother got a diamond ring from your three times great-grandfather, they're like, probably great-great-great-grandma Millie did. And now I need one. Charles, I need one. (laughs) Now I need one, Brad. (laughs) Yes. And it's just, it's amazing. So the next time you're thinking about your future engagement ring, and this goes to all of you, buyers or receivers, think about how 
80% of American marriages begin with a diamond because a bunch of rich white men in the 40s convinced everyone that it determines your self-worth. And they created the convention that unless a man purchases an intrinsically useless diamond, his life is a failure. And yet... I still want one. I know. I know. <laughs> that's how good they are. Fucking so Gerald good. Locke. So good. And the thing is, like, now it's even more insidious because now it does feel like a tradition. Like, now my mother and my grandmother did receive diamond rings as engagement gifts. Yeah. And I have, like, I have a diamond ring, which is not an engagement ring. It's, like, a family heirloom. Yeah. It's my most prized possession. Absolutely. It's my favorite thing that I have. Yeah. Because it feels so, like, precious and Mm old-worldly and... You know, like... It feels like a status symbol. There's all this, like, weird feeling of ancestry yeah. wrapped up in diamonds. Exactly. And it could be anything. It could be, like, why is it not rubies and sapphires? And, exactly. It, it, it and could have been stuff. any of those. It's just because De Beers hired this guy. So, like, you say it feels like this generational ancestral thing, but, like, think about it. It started in the 40s. So, like, it yeah. started with your grandparents. Yep. Yeah. So that is generational, but it's not hundreds of years. Yeah. It's, it's not, not even a hundred years. Diamonds aren't forever. Maybe. What a take. What a hot take. What a hot, hot take. <laughs> this is a segment I'm going to call a uh, hot tip. Here it is. If you still want a diamond, which I get, part of me still wants one, they're sparkly, and they make you feel like you did a thing. Mm. I get it. De Beers did a really good job. Uh, and by that I mean they're awful. If you still want a diamond, like, the way to do it is to buy a vintage ring. Because... As much as that ring was gotten by unfair labor practices and a fucked up system, those tolls have already been paid. And by buying it, like, you're not feeding in directly to the De Beers system. Right. It's like buying, like, a leather jacket. Yeah. Secondhand. Yeah. And you get a beautiful vintage ring. Yeah, there you go. Which is my favorite style anyways. That's a hot tip for anyone who feels the need to buy a diamond for their partner, uh, is try to buy vintage if you can. Try to buy conflict-free, but again... Not always a guarantee. It's kind of a misnomer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, buy them a pearl. Buy them a sapphire. <laughs> Diamonds are forever, but emeralds are... Also for a really long time. Yeah. <laughs> emeralds gonna live outlive you as well. Oof. I learned so much just now. Isn't that a crazy story? That's crazy. It is wild. I read a lot of this on a website called, like, Priceonomics, and it was actually, like, very fun and well-written. So highly recommend. We'll tweet it out. Yeah. I'm probably gonna tweet you a bunch of... Um, things on my Pinterest board, my secret <laughs> Pinterest board of engagement rings that I love. You're gonna be like, is this one okay? Um, <laughs> How yeah. about this one? That seems weird and passive aggressive <laughs> towards my current partner. Um, but yeah, neither of us, and then, like, I'll reiterate, like, neither, we're both 23, like, neither of us want yeah, no interest. to get engaged right now. But we're both, like, we both look at engagement rings and go like, <laughs> like, they're so pretty. Yeah, I know literally nothing about engagement rings, but in, in my brain I'm still, like, but I'll have one. Like, that's how oh, I know marketed a lot about I, them. You know more than I do. I know well, again, a lot about you're a little bit. Yeah. Like, I'm about to say this with love. Like, you're a little waspier than I am. And then yeah. you, like, you know, like, what a pear shape is and what this kind of setting means. And, and like, there's something in the back of my brain that's like, oh, I want a carrot. And, like, that's <laughs> dumb. Like, there's, like, that's like a, that's like a status symbol of, like, if you have a carrot or two carrot or three yeah. carrot. Like, um, I think my mom has slightly under a carrot. Like, the carrot size is another, like, stupid, you know, like, dick measuring contest yeah. of, like, once you get to a carrot, the price skyrockets where you could get, like, 0.99 mm-hmm. of a carrot 
or like just slightly under a carat, and it's the exact same size. Yeah. Doesn't look any different. It doesn't look any different, but it's so much cheaper because just because mm-hmm. you know it's so stupid. It's so useless. And honestly, like I'm just like. I love sparkly things, like, you know, like a In fish general. darting through, Hell yeah. seeing a piece of litter, but it doesn't matter, you know? No. Like, it doesn't matter. It's not going to make your marriage stick. No. But when <laughs> you know? it feels like a cultural legacy, when it, it feels, feels like a matter. Yeah, and it's like, it's the same reason, like, why do I want handbags? You know, like, why do I want, <laughs> you know, why do you, why is there a $2,000 Gucci purse that was the background of my phone for a while? You know, like, it's just... It doesn't mean anything, and I logically know, like, diamonds don't matter, material items don't matter, like, I don't need any stuff, yet we're in my bedroom surrounded by stuff. Amen. You know? It's a lot, so, yeah, folks, just think about diamonds and if you really need one. And if the answer's (laughs) still yes, buy vintage. That's the end of my notes for today, and now I'm about to learn about something I know zero about. Take it over. I don't want to do this. I don't know that I want you to, and yet here we both are. So I let me, straight up don't want to talk about this at all. Let me take a sip of this soda, and then let's get into it. Oh, it's hot in here. I'm <laughs> overwhelmed. Okay. How do I talk about insane clown posse after we just talked about, like, diamonds and romance? I guess that's and pretty conflict. And conflict, though. I'll get back into that mindset. Okay. All right. What, the insane clown posse. What is that? What is that? Good question. So, formed in 1989 in Detroit, Michigan. Mm. So, like, move over, Motown. <laughs> this is really the, the <laughs> musical the genesis of Detroit. Of Detroit. Um, the Insane Clown Posse, also known as ICP, is a, and I have a question mark next to this, hip-hop group? <laughs> so, they're a hip-hop duo, technically, and they specialize in something called horrorcore. Okay. And so what that is, is a subgenre of hip-hop based on horror-themed and often darkly transgressive lyrical content and imagery. Is this gonna fit back in with your fear of the movie It? Kind of. (laughs) Not really. Um, It's more, like, violent than actually, Mm. like, horror-based. Like, they're not trying to scare you like a Stephen King novel. It's just violent, really. So yeah, that sounds fun, right? So other examples of horrorcore are, like, Three Six Mafia... Tech 9 I think, is on their label. And even Eminem sometimes. So Eminem has a alter ego called Slim Shady. Mm. We're all children of the 90s, right? <laughs> and that alter ego is extremely violent. And, like, he raps about murder and, like, mm-hmm. murdering his wife and, like, being, mm. you know, beating somebody to death with a lead pipe. Like, he does that in character, but he still does it. And so that's kind of considered horrorcore, too. But yeah, like, they talk about violently murdering people and abusing and murdering women, so, like, strike one in my book for Mm. horrorcore. I'm not interested. Not into it. But here we are. So, anyways, the group has had a lot of members go in and out, but the backbone of the group has always been two guys, uh, not unlike Glenn Frey and Don Henley. (laughs) (laughs) Just two dudes. Two dudes. Uh, And their names are legally Joseph Bruce and Joseph Utzler. Two Joes! But they are known as Violent J and Shaggy Two Dope. Not to be confused with Shaggy, who is the full endorsement of this podcast. (laughs) So they grew up in Detroit together, and they met through a network of backyard wrestling rings in Detroit. Not unlike how you and I met, right, Sam? (laughs) Don't we all meet our best friends that way? Absolutely. And we're friends to this day. So they were initially known as the JJ Boys, as aforementioned. They're both named Joseph. Okay, I like that group better. Agreed. I'm already more on board for the JJ Boys. Agreed. Um, Then they were known as the Inner City Posse, and they eventually changed their name to Insane Clown Posse to more closely represent this burgeoning subgenre 
that was happening a lot in Detroit called acid rap. Okay. So, like, gangster rap was happening in L.A. Acid rap was something that was really popular, I guess, in Detroit, or at least in their circles, which was rap that was focused on imagery surrounding hallucinogens. Okay. Basically, if you, like, dropped acid and then went to a circus, that's the vibe they're trying to cultivate. And you know what? Say what you will about Insane Clown Posse, but I would posit that if that's their goal, they've actually done a pretty good job. (laughs) So they actually got relatively popular in the early 2000s. And they got some followers. And they called those followers, uh, you probably know this, Juggalos. This is the one thing I know about this is the thing you know. Posse is that they there's Juggalos. Or the femme version of that is Juggalettes. Which, why do we have to do that? Yeah, why do we have to gender juggles? <laughs> it's just horrible. Why do we have to... I'm horrified. Why do we have to split it up? <laughs> um, so I tried to track the etymology of this nickname and was successful. Oh, good job. Um, it proved challenging, but I was successful. Uh, apparently it comes from one of their songs called The Juggler, which I believe is sort of a slang. I sound like a hundred years old. <laughs> but it's just like them saying the juggler, but they're too, they're too cool for school to just use ours. Yeah, that was my assumption um, as well. So, like, clowns juggle. Yeah. You get it, right? Um, Acid circus. I'm, I'm on board with so this. So, like that. I'm not on board the with the vibe, but I understand it. Absolutely. Also, I should qualify. They're white rappers. So, like, they're rappers, but... If, if you didn't get that they were white rappers yeah. from the whole other <laughs> from the everything about them, saying. But I just wanted to be clear that they appropriate a lot of hip-hop yeah. stuff. And that's also bad. Yes. And I'm horrified by that. So, just wanted to get that out there. So, they're fans of, Juggalos are fans of ICP and also the other bands on their label, which is Psychopathic Records. Mm, good um, title. Great label. <laughs> every year, I can't get through this. I'm not strong enough. You must. Every year, there is a gathering of the Juggalos. <laughs> Your face right now. Which insiders just call the gathering, so that's what we're going to call it because we're in this now. I don't know. I yeah. <laughs> you do what I say. It's my segment. So there's a fabulous article by Camille Dodaro, which I'll definitely link to, that gets into the things that happen at this three to four day long music festival. So it's a festival. So that it's happens like Coachella. It's like Coachella. <laughs> yes. So in the article that she wrote, she quotes Violent J on the event, quote, it's a motherfucking juggalo Woodstock, only better. There's more to do, more to see, more hoes to fuck, and it's all insane as hell. So if that doesn't sound like a Roman holiday to you, <laughs> I don't know what does. does. Sign me up! Does he say that part about, that doesn't sound like a Roman holiday No, that's me. That's my... I he knew that reference. <laughs> I wish, He's no. also a huge fan of Audrey Hepburn. That was me. Um, I'm just excited. So the gathering, as we call it, is held in the woods in Illinois somewhere. I didn't care to fact check. I don't want to know. And there's lots of normal gross festival behavior. Music festivals in general are just not my cup of tea. Mm -hmm. Um, Like sleeping outside and getting belligerently drunk for three days straight. Mm -hmm. But there's also something called Lake Hepatitis, which is an open hole in the ground filled with still water that's just like gross and green and like filled with trash that people jump into naked. So that happens. I would not do that if I were them, but I'm not a juggalette. You would do a lot of the stuff that this is the premise of. No, I don't think I would. Um, There's also something called the Drug Bridge, which is a footbridge nearby in this little town. Do you do drugs on it? No, you just buy the drugs there. But you don't do them there. (laughs) You sound really stupid right now. (laughs) I was going to say, everyone has a bridge in their town where people did drugs. You would not fit in at uh, the gathering. You know, it's just like where the drug dealers hang out, which, you know, fine, aptly named. 
And so also it's summer, so it could be like 90 degrees or more. And there's a lot of anonymous and public sex, lots of violence, lots of setting things on fire. They set a whole porta potty on fire. Like the people in this town, the poor people, saw a bunch of them buying like big jugs of gasoline so they called the police and were like this feels like something you should know about um and it was this is like i just finished watching that documentary wild wild country about when the rajneesis moved into uh oregon this sounds exactly like that but worse yeah and similarly vice did i believe they did a documentary about the gathering in 2012 so i I didn't get to watch that but i know that it exists somewhere all right we're gonna watch it immediately after recording this podcast and we'll tweet out some reactions let us know if you need a bonus episode oh my god so i'm just going to assume based on the violently misogynistic nature of icp's lyrics coupled with the violently misogynistic tendencies of large groups of men in general that there is a fair amount of sexism, mm. verbal assault, and physical and sexual assault happening at the festival, as as happens at many festivals. Feels like a fair guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, their lyrics are brutally violent towards women and sex workers, so that sucks. And that's, like, the thing is, like, that's a problem with a lot of mainstream music, mm-hmm. but this truly does take the cake, like, yeah. I promise. So the festival usually pulls around 10,000 people. At its height, it pulled 20,000 in 2010. Damn. 20,000 people. Damn. So, some other fun facts. Are they fun? Facts. Some facts for you. They had a feud with Eminem, both before and after Eminem got famous. So, remember, they were from Detroit, and Eminem is from from 8 Mile. Yeah. So, 8 Mile, if you don't know, is a stretch of road 8 miles north of Detroit. Again, aptly named. Fair enough. (laughs) A movie we'll probably cover at some point in this podcast. God. So, that happened. They formed a Juggalo Wrestling Championship. Well, that's how they met. That brings it right back to the beginning, you know? Yeah, it's the origin. (laughs) It's the origin of them. So I could have researched that. I chose not to. (laughs) I don't need to know. In March of 2017, the Juggalos marched on Washington (laughs) to protest. No, I need a moment. I I need three beats of silence. And I'm sorry, listeners. But I need to process the Juggalo March on Washington. So if I can have silence, I will let you know when you can speak again. Okay. Okay. (laughs) March of 2013. They marched to protest their classification as a loosely organized gang by the FBI's National Gang Threat Assessment. Which they handed down that classification in 2011, but they marched last year. It just took them a few years. They, they said loosely organized. Yeah, they so. said, I mean, they weren't pissed about it yet. <laughs> um, so this is actually kind of interesting because I there's an article about this by Timothy Bella from Rolling Stone um, from last year. And as he said, it was kind of unprecedented to hand down a gang classification to a fan group of a musical act. Yeah. So, like, that had kind of never happened before. Mm-hmm. Other groups and artists had famously been affiliated with gangs. Yeah. But none of them, Created you know, a gang around the yeah, of them. Yeah, or were classified that way. Like, you wouldn't classify all the fans of, you know, an artist who was affiliated with a gang as members of that gang. Yes. But they class- they loosely classified- all fans, like, all juggalos. Like, I think also it, it helped that they had a name <laughs> And a name to lend that's that to horrifying. That. Um, and there were instances of violence on behalf of people who identified that way. But does that make it okay to label all of them a gang? I actually, I don't know how I feel about this. Like, kind of the jury's out. Yeah. I am super comfortable calling them very weird and kind of culty. 
but I don't work for the FBI. That's true. So I can kind of say whatever I want. And very weird and kind of culty is probably not a legal classification, although maybe it should be. When I work for the FBI, I'll, I'll change some rules. So that's some for you, some nuance for you to chew on. Interesting. Um, something else that I found hysterical was something I read on their Wikipedia page <laughs> that I just had to share, which said, the themes of God's presence and the final judgment of individuals are explored in multiple insane clown posse songs. <laughs> And so they believe in a in a in a god that judges us. I don't know. I stopped after that sentence because I couldn't bear to learn anymore. <laughs> oh my god. <clears throat> well, honestly, if they believe in a god that will judge them, then how are they doing this? I know. I don't get it. So here is the point where I have to talk about the last thing that horrifies me about the insane clown posse, which is my own personal affiliation to them. Yeah, you just said the words. I have a history with the insane clown posse. I'm going to move some things away from me because if I have to break a table or something, I just want to be If you safe. have to decide we're not friends anymore. I Ooh. never was a fan. Okay. But I do have a history with it. We've discussed the fact that as a young teenage idiot, mm-hmm. I was deeply insecure and very malleable as a person. Absolutely. I didn't have a lot of ethics. All of us were. Um, my only ethics were geared toward... Please, God, let everyone like me. Yes. I just want to be liked. So that being said, a bunch of my friends... Friends? It's hard to call them friends. <laughs> were they true friends? None of them were nice to me, but we hung out all the time. We've all been to middle school, right? Yeah. Um. So a bunch of my frenemies were very into insane, cl- clown, insane clown posse, and some of them even identified as juggalos. Oh my God. Like, they chose to identify that way. Holly, you were in again. I never identified myself that way, but, like, they always listened to the music and my best friend, again, friend, quote, had, like, a hatchet man necklace, which is their little symbol, a cartoon guy carrying a hatchet. Charming. Um, uh. And some of the guys I knew, like, had tattoos uh. of, like, their label. And, like, it was so normal in my, like, group. And I am still recovering from that. Like, that. I look back on it now, like, I imagine a lot of, like, the former Nexium participants. Oh, my God. <laughs> look back on it, like, how did I allow that behavior to enter my life? What? In any way. What was your favorite Insane Clown Palsy song? I didn't have one. I yes, remember you did. some you of them. You had one that you were like, this one's not bad. <laughs> no, I will not. <laughs> I will not concede to that. I didn't, I don't really remember a lot of the names of them, but I remember like some of the lyrics and stuff. Like I kind of. Throw me a lyric. I can't. I literally <laughs> can't bear to do it. But like, yeah, the, the girls I smoked my first cigarette with behind Walsh Middle School, mm. they were really into insane. They'll remain nameless. Insane Clownposse. Um, Wowee. But, you know, I'm I'm more familiar with their discography than I would like to admit. <laughs> and some of their songs, like I wrote down some of their songs. I won't do the thing that I did with Spike TV. To oh my you, god. I would be interested because I have no concept for this one. Some of their songs include House of Horrors, Redneck Ho. Ghetto Freak Show, mm. Wizard of the Hood, mm. Night of the Axe. Axes were a big thing for them. I remember that. How spooky. My Axe, which is a song I remember. <laughs> I remember that song. And then also, I Stab People, which, you know, nuanced. I thought that was a James Taylor cover. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's, that's a couple. That's them. And that's all I've got. Like, that's. That's oh, insane God. clown posse. And they've got the makeup too, right? And I, I didn't even talk about that. Yeah, they they dress up like clowns, like they wear clown paint. And like they've been interviewed and stuff on nighttime talk shows and stuff and they're wearing the makeup and they're just like they're crazy violent and extremely like belligerent and but you know they say like, you know, we're a home for misfits and a lot of people describe their relationship to it as 
you know, I don't have a family and they're my family and none of all of us are misunderstood. (laughs) And it's like to that, I'm like, fine, but it's so drenched in like misogyny and violence Mm -hmm. and all this other stuff that I'm like, eh. But it's like so many things are. It's so complicated. I think for some of the things I've described alone, I'm horrified, but you know, I think with anything, like, I'm not trying to say like Every juggalo is a bad person. Yes, I'm not trying to say that. Or even that any of them are a bad person. Yeah. But, like, I'm sure some of them are, as we all are. Yeah. But, like, just the the content of horrified. <laughs> so that's that. And I'm also very pro, like, do whatever the fuck you want if you're an adult. Like, I am very pro that. Yes. I am very pro, like, create whatever content you want. Because violence is something that exists in our world, and, like should be explored. I don't think Insane Clown Posse does it well. You don't think they're the people you know? that do it? All yeah. Right. I need to look up a Insane Clown Posse lyric, because I've never heard a song Please. in my life. So give me, like, a song to look up. Um, look up My Axe. Look my up Axe. That. All right. Let me find it. All right, here. I'll bring you down to a verse. Yeah, please do. It's pretty repetitive. Oh, really? They're not brilliant lyricists? I'm shocked. Should I try to stop at the top? Yeah, start. All right. I love my Fago. Don't know what that is. Fago is a soda brand from Detroit. Nice. Keep moving. I love pills, shaggy. I love my buddies, my hatchet man, but I love my axe. My axe is my buddy. I bring him when I walk. Me and my axe will leave your head outlined in chalk. My axe is my buddy. He always makes me laugh. Me and my axe cut Bigot's spinal cords in half. That one's okay. (laughs) My axe is my buddy. And when I wind him back, me and my axe... We'll give your forehead a butt crack. <laughs> I remember that lyric. Let's stop there. I think they get it. So, yeah. That's it's like the worst Dr. Seuss I've ever read in my life. Fair enough that they're advocating for, like... <laughs> killing a bigot. Killing a bigot, I guess. So it's nuanced. I'm horrified. <laughs> Why did you tell me about these people? I know. I'm really sorry. <sighs> I think we both had about as much as we can stand. Guys, thank you so much for being with us for yeah. this episode. Thanks for being... A trooper with us. Oh my god. Stay horrified. Stay horrified.